the story of a boy who dreamed of becoming a man, but dreamed up a monster instead. It has hunted you since the summer of 1994, back when we confessed who we were through mixtapes, when every movie at the video store had dirty heads. You were 13 and thought you knew who you were, only the shadow with too many teeth knew you better. It still does, and it won't stop, not until you come home, back to where it all began. Part cosmic horror, part coming-of-age story, Dirty Heads is a terrifying read from the author of House of Size, The Fallen Boys, and A Place for Sinners. Out now. It was as if the video had unzipped my skin, slunk inside my tapered flesh, and become one with me. From the creator of This Is Horror comes a new nightmare for the digital age, The Girl in the Video by Michael David Wilson. After a teacher receives a weirdly arousing video, his life descends into paranoia and obsession. More videos follow, each containing information no stranger could possibly know. But who's sending them, and what do they want? The answers may destroy everything and everyone he loves. The girl in the video is the ring meets fatal attraction for the iPhone generation. Available now in paperback, ebook, and audio. So, Jonathan, I don't know, and Mark, I don't know if you've, you two have ever talked to each other before. So, introductions, yes, no? Uh, I sat next to him at uh, the One World Horror Convention I got to go to. There we go. Oh, yeah. yeah, that was uh, 2016, 15. 14? I think it's 2015. It's on the back of this shirt, actually. Okay. Well, yeah, it was, it was a while ago, but it's good to see you again. Yeah. I, I'm older and grayer. In fact, I'm older, older. I, I just, my birthday was yesterday, so. I'm, oh, yeah, happy birthday. I'm officially a Beatles song when I'm 64. <laughs> Welcome to Dead Headspace. I am your host, Patrick R. McDonough. Unfortunately, today, Brennan could not make it. He'll be back next week when we talk with Mark Matthews. Today, filling in for Brennan is my friend, Mark Allen Gunnels, a author of many, many books. But Mark, say hello. Hello out there. I am a poor substitute for Brennan, but I will do my best. <laughs> that is a lie. You'd be a poor substitute for no one. Jonathan Mayberry is with us today. Say hello, sir. Hello, guys. And it's wonderful to be here. And last time you were on, excuse me, it was a while ago. It was uh, January 18th, 2021. So that was season one, episode 18. One of the very first ones when we started to record video. Um, so that's been a while. This is a very vague question, but what have you been up to since then? <laughs> Hope you have a comfortable seat. Um, I, I am I am going through the busiest phase of my life. I'm right now writing four novels a year, plus short stories, plus comics, plus cool. editing weird tales and editing anthologies. So um Holy it, it, shit. Would take, it would take me about an hour to catalog everything that's happened um you know one of the 
the, the, probably the two biggest things. One is the fact that I'm now the editor of Weird Tales and, you know, that's rocking along. And we, uh, um, we, we just made a deal with Blackstone, uh, the, the publishing house to, uh, also launch a, a novel imprint of Weird Tales, Weird Tales Present, which it's never had wow. a novel before. And um, so that that's exciting. We'll have some big news coming up soon about who's going to be writing for it. Cool. And, um, you know, the next three issues of Weird Tales are going to absolutely kick ass. Um, the next one coming up, which has been a month or two, it's it's a sword and sorcery issue. Speaks to my, you know, childhood heart. And uh, <laughs> our, our, um, our lead, you know, story is an excerpt of Michael Moorcock's next Elric novel. Nice. With an essay about Moorcock by Neil Gaiman. Oh, um, wow. Then, yeah. <laughs> the issue after, if, issue after that's a, a Hellboy cover story by Mike Mignolo and Chris Golden. And the one after that's going to be an Anita Blake um, cover story by uh, Laurel Hamilton. So, or, so Laurel Hamilton. So we're, we're, we're really setting them up and knocking them down as we yeah. gear up to the Weird Tales 100th anniversary next year. So, so oh, that's smokes. I did not realize. Uh, wow. Yeah, I knew it came out in the twenties. That's a lot to break down. Mark, I'm gonna shut the hell up and see if you have anything to add to that. <laughs> well, I mean, it certainly sounds like you don't have enough to do. I, you know, I, I, I really do need to get a work ethic going on here. <laughs> well, you know, what really strikes me is, as busy as you are, and as much as you do, you're one of the nicest and most accessible writers that I've interacted with online. Well, wow, you have and, low standards, but I appreciate <laughs> Very nice. And I, I did, before the show started, I mentioned that we we met once. Um, I was at the World Horror Convention in 2015 in Atlanta, um, which was the first one I'd ever been to. And I was on my very first panel, and they set me right next to you. And I was a little bit in awe, but you were so nice to me, and you were so gracious, and it made me feel very comfortable. And um, it... Gave it felt it gave me the permission to be the big goofball that I am, and um, so that's not really a question, but just saying that you know I, I do appreciate how um, kind and generous you are to other writers uh, who are coming up. Well, I appreciate you saying that, but that's, that's here's the thing about that. You know, all writers should be that way because we're all book nerds at heart. I mean, yeah. whether we're we're further along in our careers or not is irrelevant. We're all book nerds, and especially the horror crowd, we're all weird book nerds. And you know, we we let our freak flag flag fly all the time because of what we write. And you know, people have been very kind to me along the way, and it, it's it's incumbent on all of us to make sure that everyone else around us feels comfortable, feels like they're at home, you know, with with family. And that's the horror community is probably the closest knit family of any of the the genre writing communities that I'm involved in. So, so it was it was a pleasure to meet you. And I'm glad to see you again tonight. That um, I've heard that from so many people that that write in many different genres too. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark, I want to talk about your experience because that was a new one uh, for me when you were at the uh, was the World Horror Convention with yeah. Jonathan. I'd love to know bullet points or long talk if you want. What was the panel about? Uh, it was a, it was a zombie panel. Ooh, um, <laughs> that's cool. And uh, I had um. Like I said, I never been. I, I can't go to a lot of conventions because I don't have a lot of money, and conventions don't come near me. But this one was in Atlanta, which was within driving distance, mm-hmm. and um, I didn't expect to be on a panel. I, um, but I communicated with the people who were setting it up, and they 
uh, gave me a few panels I could be on, but only one the day that I could actually be there. And that was the zombie panel because I had a, at the time I had a zombie novella out called Asylum and one coming out called Fork. And there were a lot of great people on that panel. And like I said, I was sitting right next to uh, Jonathan. And it's funny, if you see the pictures, um, I was the last one to get there and the table was not as long as the amount of people they had. So they just pulled me up a seat next to it. So in the pictures, it looks like I literally just walked in and pulled up a seat next to the table. <laughs> but I was legitimately, legitimately there. Yeah, we were we were going to have security throw you off the stage because, you know, it, it looked like you were just trying to, you know, horn in. But then I was just so damn charming. They, they yeah, that's what it is. But, Boyish good looks. But um, but yeah, but I was very nervous. But like I said, Jonathan was very nice. Um, and like I said, he was the one next to me. So he. He put me at ease and it, I thought it was a great panel. Um, it was a lot of fun. We laughed a lot. Um, you know, nobody was taking themselves too seriously. I always say like, I take my work seriously, but I don't take myself seriously. So, um, that's a, so, that's a very good way to, to, to go through this, this, this uh, career, you know? Yeah. It was a, it was a great time. And it was just so, because, you know, I first read Jonathan, when um, Ghost Road Blues came out, which I think was in the early 2000s. 2006. Yeah, so um, it was just kind of surreal to be there uh, next to him. And, you know, he has really made a name for himself in the zombie field. So um, yeah. that, that was nice. It, it was nice just to, to sit next to greatness. <laughs> well, if you want to talk sitting next to greatness, uh, one of my early panels um, after... I think it was when when either Rotten Ruin or Dead of Night came out. Um, I, they put me on a panel next to George Romero, mm. and um, I mean he created the zombie genre as we know it. <laughs> and I, I was so intimidated because when I was ten years old, I snuck into the movies to see the world premiere of Night of the Living Dead, uh, October second, nineteen sixty eight. So he's been kind of a like a, a god to me, you know. And I sat down next to him. I was, I, you know, even though I'm a grown man and I'm a martial arts instructor and all this, you know, I should be competent and everything else. Sitting next to Romero freaked me out, but he put me completely at ease. Um, and he, he, it's funny you should mention not taking yourself too seriously because he made a comment very much like that. You know, before we started, he said, he said, you look nervous, kid. He called me kid. He and Stephen King both call me kid. I am not a kid. But um, and he said, you know, just think about this. We write about corpses biting people. How serious should we take ourselves? And that was great. And it actually started what became a friendship between the two of us and, and later on a, a business working partnership. Um, he was he was a great guy. And that's again, that that's the horror community in a nutshell right there. We can't take ourselves too seriously because um, we, we make stuff up for a living and, and and you know, we're professional daydreamers. How seriously should you take that? The fact that we, we do it as business, the business side we take care of you know, in a, in a nice business-like fashion. But the fact that we, you know, we're writing down the weird crap that's in our head. If we took ourselves too seriously, our egos would, would get completely out of control very quickly and we would not have fun anymore and people wouldn't have fun with us anymore. So uh, I'm glad, I'm glad you felt at ease at that, that time. And uh, um, you know, you sh you're one of us, no matter where you are in your career, you're one of us. And that that's, that's what makes this all fun. You know, we're all one big, very weird family. Being able to talk to people like you, Jonathan, or, or Mark, or whoever else, it's it's really interesting because no matter who we've talked to, I haven't. We we are recording 150th episode right now, and uh, awesome. 
I haven't talked to one person where they're like actually sincerely saying, yeah, I'm pretty much the greatest person. It's, it's always someone that they relate to like with you or, or Ronald Kelly or, or, or Peter Straub, they're talking about Ray Bradbury, Matheson. Um, and, and of course, George Romero, but who is one of my favorite writers. He's one of my biggest influences. Night of the Living Dead was a big one for me, but it was the remake because I am I was born in 89 and I saw the Tom Savini remake when uh, I was young and that had a big impression on me. But my point is, is that's really neat because before the internet was a big thing, um, I grew up in a small New England town and Ellie had DVDs and VHSs to really watch interviews. I didn't have any way to interact with any. There were no local writers I was aware of. So I thought that I had them on a pedestal for the longest time. And it makes me wonder, you know them, you knew them like really well. The guys that you looked up to, how do you think that they would react to stuff like this, like a podcast, do you think that most of them would be like you, you or Brian Keene or insert whoever? Interesting thought. Interesting question. Cause I, I knew Bradbury and Matheson very well. Um, and uh, they were mentors of mine when I was young. Mm-hmm. I think Bradbury would be totally jazzed by it, you know, <laughs> and, and, and his usual humility. Cause he was like the most down to earth guy. Matheson would probably not want to do it because he just wasn't that social cat. Um, and Harlan Ellison would have, even though he would have dominated the conversation and been, you know, epically and hilariously grumpy. Um, but, you know, grumpy on behalf of writers. I mean, let's face it, he, all the rants and stuff that he, he, he's, you know, accused of being, you know, so great was because he, he hated seeing writers not get paid. I have no stones to throw with that, you know. Um, <laughs> Me either. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I, I, you know. I, th- I think Bradbury of, of all of them would have been the most comfortable doing these sorts of things because they are social. I mean, we're sitting in our comfortable chairs. We're at home, you know, on, on, on a device, on a, a science fiction device that, you know, suddenly we're able to have this conversation. Yeah. I mean, this zoom is more technologically advanced than the recorders, the, the um, communicators in the first uh, series of Star Trek, you know? So yeah. Never thought of that. I mean, the <laughs> were so old fashioned. They were they were like wow. flip phones from from the late nineties, you know, and um, and here we are having a, a live conversation in full color from different states. You know, it, Bradbury would have been so happy about this. That's wow. That makes perfect sense about all that too. Makes me wonder. And from what I know, he's not like as easygoing as Bradbury, but. What are your thoughts on Philip K. Dick? I didn't even think we'd go here, man. But we're talking about sci-fi now. I, I never met him. Um, I, I actually don't know much about him in terms of personality. I know his writing. Um, I get the impression that he was a very inward guy. Yeah. Um, whereas Heinlein was a little more outward. You know, mm-hmm. he, he was more gregarious because he was more uh, of, of a, a, a science nerd who liked to talk about, you know, science and science and futurism. Whereas Philip K. Dick, I mean, he, he wrote about that, but he was very much in his own head, mm-hmm. um, probably closer in a lot of ways to Alan Moore, maybe not as grumpy, um, <laughs> but, um, you know, the kind of guy who, if you ask a question, there were probably a long silence as he's coming up with his brilliant answer and then the answer would go on for 45 minutes so i think that would be philip k dick and and, you know you probably wouldn't put him on a panel so much as a solo thing 
Um, but there are other writers who, you know, who who would have been would have been great with this. Uh, Frank Herbert would have been fun on these. Oh, things. yes. That'd be amazing. Um, I I want to lead to anthologies real quick. And we're absolutely going to get to to um, Kajin. It's pronounced Kajin, right? Kagan. Kagan. Damn. All right. One for you, Brennan. Uh, <laughs> I want to go to you, Mark. Is there anything that you want to add to this? Any authors that of writers that you want to throw in there? Hypotheticals of what if they were in today's society and with technology that we have and take for you know advantage of or take for granted rather. Um, I mean, it's not really anything I've ever really thought about, but I grew up like you and uh, you know because I'm I'm older than you are, you know. I was born in 74. There was no internet. There was no cell phones back then. So um, I didn't have any way. I would like find magazines with interviews with authors. And um, every now and again, I still, I, I remember watching Steve, the first Stephen King interview I ever saw was on the Whoopi Goldberg show when she had a nighttime talk show. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have a VCR at the time. So I took a tape recorder and just taped the audio of it so I could listen to it. So like these days I'm, I'm almost obsessed with like watching author interviews because I'm fascinated by the fact that it's something we all love to do, but we all do it differently. And that's perfectly valid. (laughs) And I'm always interested in how other people's processes are. Um, So, you know, I, I do, you know, when some of the older authors, I always do kind of lament that, you know, I can't really find a lot with them because, you know, it was before we were recording every single second of our lives. But um, so I can't think of any particular author, but I mean, I do. I love Bradbury and and Matheson in particular. Um, I also, you know, they go along in my mind with um, Sterling from The Twilight Zone, which was Mm. probably my biggest influence. So, um, you know, it would it would be great if you know they were here with us and could and could do these interviews. Yeah, marvelous. So, Jonathan, you your bibliography is fucking massive, man, and and that's not an ego boost. That's a that's a fact. Yeah, uh, including a lot of anthologies, and um, mm-hmm. I just went through the final uh, acceptances and rejections for my first one for a weird Western. And I would love to pick your brain because, and I saved it for the, for on air, because I know that there's uh there's probably someone out there that would listen to this, um, that it might inspire to maybe start their own anthology or jump on board with a publisher like I did. So my first question to you is what advice would you give to some, someone that may have never edited before which was the case with me, but I built up, I think, my experience with this show by having essentially master classes. And on top of that, getting beta notes from everyone I could that I trusted to eventually giving constructive, concise beta notes. So that was my experience, which led up to the editing. But what is your what is your suggestion or, or input on on first time editors or, or newer editors that want to try an anthology out? Sure. Um, well, I'm actually editing two right now, so I'm doing my 19th and 20th anthologies right now. Wow! Congrats. One is a Weird West. One is it's a Deadlands anthology. Oh, okay. You know, the, based on the role playing game. The other one is an anthology based on my Joe Ledger 
uh, character. It's the second one we're doing on that. Nice. But um, uh, the thing about anthologies, you got to pick a topic that you find fun, you know, something you're a fan of hmm. um, and some, something that you know that if, if you're going to spend, you know, months off and on doing it, it's not like an anthology is an all day job every day. You keep coming back to it over and over again, but you got to have something that you look forward to coming back to. And that's a big thing. Second, spend a lot of time, you know, figuring out who would be the most fun to work with. I tend to work in what I call the zero bullshit zone. (laughs) I don't work with people who are prima donnas. I don't work with people who think it's all about them, that they are the the superstars. That gets old real fast. I, I don't have the time or the interest to burn up calories, massaging egos and, and handholding. I just don't. So what I do is I usually curate my anthologies. I, I, even the ones that I eventually will do an open call for, I'll curate by doing maybe bringing in the first five or 10 people, uh, reaching out to friends of mine who I know are good, solid writers, you know, ideally some of them who are, you know, well-known names so that we can have marquee names on the cover, but also people I can trust to turn in a good story on time. And if they have issues, they'll they'll reach out to me. We'll have a conversation rather than an argument about things because sometimes there are you know little little uh, rough patches, and you want to be able to to work with someone to get through that to make sure that what you come up with at the end of it is something that you're both happy with. That you know, um, so creating a good set of of guidelines that that are easy to follow with a, a little bit of flexibility, but also making sure that you have some people already on board, even before you sell the anthology, you know, you reach out to some people and say, Hey, I'm, I'm pitching this anthology. This is, this is the premise. I'm going to try to get the best rates possible. If I get a decent deal, would you be in? And, you know, with an estimated lead time for publication, I, I find that by, by bringing in those names, first off, um, it helps sell it to an to an editor, or if you're going to launch a Kickstarter, it draws interest in the Kickstarter right there, you know, because, now you have p- names that people relate to. They've read their writing. They know how good they are, and they, they can get enthused about the project. And at the same time, those people then become part of your sales force because they also, you know, talk about the project. They talk about their involvement in it, and so on. They'll share links and they'll they'll share press releases and, and cover reveals, and that makes it kind of like an ongoing party to do mm-hmm. the anthology. Um, I also make sure that that um, somewhere along the way, I've got to find someone who's better at better at um, line editing and proofreading than I am. I'm a, I'm a structural and content editor. Uh, no one in their right mind would trust me to edit for spelling and grammar. I'm a product of the Philadelphia school system and it shows. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I, I have people, I usually get someone involved who's, who's going to do that, whether if it's, for example, if I'm going to a, a publishing house and let, you know, taking the project to them, like I've done some stuff with Titan, with IDW, with uh, Macmillan, uh, they usually have a good in-house editor for the, the line edits and the proofreading. I still want to give them a, as clean a copy as possible. Um, another thing that helps is if you can get someone who is good at that sort of thing, but doesn't necessarily have a name yet, you know, like a, recon- a, a well-known career, have them come on board as as, as a kind of a, uh, I wouldn't say a minion, um, um, and there's a difference between minion and, and henchman. Uh, the more henchmen, minion will do anything for you except kill kill someone. A henchman will kill some someone for you. So you want someone in that zone, and then maybe also give them the opportunity of pitching a story to you as well. That way, you're you know not only do they get a paycheck, hopefully for for the story, but they're also earning some some industry chops and and goodwill by helping you with things like the proofreading and so on. 
That's perfect. So building it like a like a like a like a family, like a club, uh, rather than you know just people at the end of emails. Um, that makes it work really well. And also with some of my my anthologies, I I often do things like this with Zoom calls because mm. uh, I want to know the people I'm working with. I I seriously dislike doing any project if I have never had a face to face. Luckily, Zoom allows for a face to face. Uh, I want to get to know the person because I want to get a read on whether they are the right balance of creative, you know, skill yeah. and 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 good business understanding. And be, because between those two poles is etiquette. So if all of that's in alignment, man, you know, I'm I'm good to go. That's a that's a lot of great input there. Thank you for that. Um, sure. So I've always wondered some some things like with with sports. There's you'll hear about these great uh, athletes that are just, they have this terrible attitude and they can't hold on to a single team. Um, Alan Iverson, speaking of one since we're talking about Philly. (laughs) Great Um, basketball player. Bit of a, bit of, bit of a difficult person to work with at times. If, can you be the greatest writer in the world and still not land a contract because of that? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, there. Are, I know people that uh, have really good, you know, have have solid careers behind them, but they're not growing their careers because they've they've become problem children. You know, they. they uh, I I there are people who reach out to me that maybe I've worked with in the past, and they may notice that I'm doing anthology after anthology, and I'm not reaching out to them. Well, there's a reason. You know, uh, I, I I said I don't like to work in a zone where somebody is a prima donna. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also bad for business too. It slows down the process. You slow down the process, you're spilling money on the floor. Yeah. As as much as we love the creative part of this stuff, writing is an art. Publishing is a business that sells copies of art. And you've got to be focused on the business part of it. You've got to do, you have to have good etiquette. You have to have good working relationships. You have to have your head out of your ass. Um, (laughs) You know, all of that is important. So there are people that I wouldn't work with, even though they may have a whole list of bestsellers behind them. Um, and, and other people know that is about them too. And it's a shame because they're the only one that got in their way. Mm. And, you know, it, it is, you have to kind of go out of your way to be that because the, the publishing world, uh, and the writing communities are very accepting, you know, of each other. So you've got to kind of put extra effort into being the kind of jackass that nobody wants to work with. Luckily they are fairly rare. And I like that about, about this community. They're, they're pretty rare. Yeah. You see that even in the, I don't know if you do, you see that in the independent side too. It's always bizarre. I, you know, even though I, I am not an indie, indie publisher or an indie published author, except in some short stories, I I'm very familiar with the indie world because of the writer's coffee house and other groups mm-hmm. and a lot of the writer's conferences and almost everyone that I know who's doing well in the indie world is doing well because they're treating it like a business mm-hmm. just because they're their own boss doesn't make it any less of a business. You know, and um, over the last, well, since about 2008 or nine, when uh, uh, the changes in digital uh, publishing and digital printing allowed more people to be able to indie publish. And also, since so many people lost their jobs during the economic downturn of 2008-9 in the publishing world, they're now freelancing to indie, you know, so you have editors and agents and book designers freelancing to the indie crowd. So it's actually the quality of indie books has risen sharply over the last 15 years. Um, so there's no stones to throw at the indie world right now. You know, some of the, I mean, the Martian was indie, 
Um, I did not know that. Yeah, it was a self-published book. Holy so shit. clearly, clearly there are some pretty high bars in there. You know, Jay Conrath and a bunch of other folks uh, who who go to the indie market. As long as they then respect the the audience enough to make sure the the product they're selling is is high quality, whether it's the cover layout, content, and editing, and we're seeing more indie people going that extra mile to put out a really competitive product. Mark, jump in. I'd love your input on this, man. Um, well, yeah, I um I didn't know that about the Martian. That originally he offered it for free on his website, <laughs> and. Uh, Andy Weir. We're talking about Andy Weir, right? Weir. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, then, then that happened. So uh, it gives hope to you know we're not all going to be Andy Weir, but we could be. So, and there are also a lot of hybrid writers too. Yeah, who are doing both. You know, because Lans- they see Lansdale's Lansdale's one of them. For sure. Yeah, yeah. He, he's one of my my best buds in the business, and you know he's a smart businessman. He sees the yeah. opportunity. He also respects Andy work. Yeah. And uh, I noticed, I know you have done a lot of work, like you did the novelization for the, the Wolfman remake, and then you worked in the X-Files world, and then you mm-hmm. edited an Alien versus Predator anthology. Yeah. And um, what is that like when you're working in an established world? Um, I mean, are, are there a lot of rules, or do they give you a certain amount of freedom? I'm just curious about how that works. Uh, well, just one little side note: I'm actually now the president of the International Association of Media Tie-In Writers. So I'm at that organization I'm now running, wow. founded by Max uh, Allen Collins and, and uh, Lee, Lee Goldberg. Um, my first media tie-in thing was The Wolfman. I had never done any media tie-in work before, and that whole project grew out of a. I was at home with the flu and watching werewolf movies. For some reason, I watch werewolf movies when I'm sick. I don't know why. It's a thing. <laughs> and I was talking about it on Facebook, asking for suggestions. And the this one person, of somebody who was following me, um, happened to be the, the assistant to the vice president in charge of licensing for Universal. And she said, hey, there's this writer guy talking about werewolf movies. Um, and she called me, uh, the, the vice president called me and said, hey, uh, we'd like, you know, any chance you might want to novelize The Wolfman. For, well, she actually asked me, have you ever heard of The Wolfman? Who the hell hasn't heard of The Wolfman? That's my and favorite I, universal monster, man. Yeah. If you look up on the shelf right up there, and it's kind of hard to say they're falling over, but that's that's both versions of The Wolfman. And they fell over. Interesting. Maybe they're making out. Who knows? But, but, <laughs> you know, anyway, so what I Thank thought. You. What I, what I thought was going to happen was I thought they would show me the movie and, you know, I would, having read the script and seen the movie, I would then write the novel. Oh, no, you get the script and that's all you get. You don't get to see the movie. I didn't see the movie till 10 days after the book was out. Um, I, I didn't see production stills. I didn't see anything. Um, you have the script. And luckily, it was a good script. But the thing is, when you're doing that sort of work, the script is not a novel. You can't just wrap a paragraph around, you know, each each line in the script and hope and call it a novel. Like the screenwriter might say, um, "Foot chase through London." Well, it's eighteen ninety something London, and it's a foot chase through it. So you've got to make that. You've got to do research to find out what eighteen you know eighteen ninety five London looks like, um, because in my head it all looks like Christmas Carol. But that was eighteen fifty. There's a lot of difference in, in in everything there, so yeah. There's a ton of research to do, and you're you know my name was going on it. It was my fifth novel, um, and um, I I wanted it to be, 
you know, as good as I can make it. So I, I did research and I wrote a gothic novel with uh, David Self's excellent script as the as the the bones of it. And it wound up being my first New York Times bestseller, which I was, you know, extremely happy with. <laughs> um, and also a number one Audible bestseller. Uh, and you mentioned Peter Straub earlier, um, Mark. I got an email from Pete. Um, basically, all it said was, fuck you. And I, I didn't know why. It's like, what did I do to upset my friend? You know, turns out that his new book came out on the same day as The Wolfman. And oh. everyone expected it to debut at number one because his last like 20 books had and the Wolfman debuted at number one, and it kicked him out of the slot. So he was messing with me, but uh, you know, which book was that? I don't remember, quite frankly. Um, whatever one came out in 2010. Um, oh, the Hell uh, Something Club. What is it? Hellfire Club. I think. I feel yeah. like that was a, it. It uh, could be it. But in any uh, case, um, but with media tie-in work, you know, it's I've done a lot of that, and I've also done comic books where you know, again, you're writing in somebody else's world. And you have to have the respect to read and know that world as much as possible hmm. and not to go in with the idea that I'm going to change everything because they don't want you to do that. They want you to add a chapter into that existing story. Uh, like when I was writing for Marvel and doing a Punisher story, I had to read a bunch of Punisher comics because I wrote my first Punisher story in 2008. I hadn't read a comic since 1990. So I had to, re I had to buy a bunch of trade paperbacks. And by the way, they don't provide you with that. <laughs> and catch up on what the Punisher was doing and other things in Marvel, and then write a story that honors the tradition and then adds something to it. Not not changes everything, adds something to it. And that's the that's the, the the challenge, but it's also the fun too, because it makes you stretch as a writer to be able to come in there and say, okay, this is this is what's going on. They they want, you know, they like the pit the story I pitched. I need to bring something to it that fans are going to read and remember without feeling like I, I went and messed up something hmm. um, because they don't want you to mess with their stuff. Like if, if somebody wrote a story where Darth Vader, you know, set during the time when Darth Vader's the evil Sith Lord, and it was a story about him raising puppies, people <laughs> would think it was cute for like one second and then it would be outraged. Yeah. You got, you got to honor the, 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 the material. And you also have to respect the fan base without kissing their ass. You know, it's, it's, it's a delicate balance. But once you kind of get into the zone, it's it's a lot of fun. And I've done, you know, God, I'm looking at some of the anthologies on my shelf that I've been involved in. Um, Hellboy, John Carter of Mars, Sherlock Holmes, uh, True Blood. I actually did one story for a Chud anthology. Remember Chud? <laughs> that 80s movie? I did a Chud story. And tons of other stuff. And Wait, was that what Crystal Lake? No, no. It was, it was in New York City. Cannibalistic Humanoid Underground Dwellers. Oh, I mean, uh, Chris, sorry, Crystal Lake Publishing. Oh, publishing. I, probably. I know that they did that one a couple of years ago. Yeah, it probably is that. I, I can't remember. I mean, I've got so many anthologies. Almost all of those books behind, well, on this side of the, of behind me are um, everything over there and on this wall are all anthologies that I'm in. And uh, um, there, there's just a whole bunch of them. But it's so much fun doing it. And again, it's a good community. Um, the downside of doing media tie-in is usually there's no royalties. It's a work for hire. It's a one and done. Uh, the upside is they usually pay a little more because, you know, it's a one and done for short fiction. The novel side of it, unless you're in the top tier, like Kevin, Kevin Anderson and, and uh, Peter David and so on, you're not making a lot of money per novel. So, but it's a great way to build your bones, you know, to, to, to make your bones, build your career, get your name out there. Um, get on the bestseller list, for example, which you know, was the first time I was on there. And it's yay. Um, 
and it's also just fun. You know, you're playing with somebody else's toys, and and that that's a lot of fun. I've actually made friends with a lot of the creators of those markets, like Mike Mignola from Hellboy, Charlene Harris from True Blood, um, George Romero, Night of the Living Dead. You know, Stan Lee. I became friends with them, and that's fun. You know, it's part of the you know because you have to you're working with them. Chris Carter, the X Files. You know, talking to him and and you know doing the three X Files anthologies, and then. Uh, a novel about Dana Scully as a, as a teenager. I actually pitched that on the phone to him while we were still talking about the X-Files anthologies. And I wound up getting that gig too. Um, you get to know these people. They are so delighted that you're enthused about their world. And um, they often have insights that may not be in the resource materials that are provided to you. So you're, you're able to build relationships and have a hell of a lot of fun, make a buck and get noticed. There's no downside. So cool. You know, if how do you even how do you even get into that if you don't have a a background? Well, the easiest way actually is um, fan fiction. I mean, even though you can't sell fan fiction, if you know, say, you know, you do some net searches like things like um, using Raylan.com, R-A-L-A-N.com. It's a great resource for finding short stories, uh, markets, and either magazines or anthologies start searching on some of your favorite licenses and seeing if, if there's any active, you know, anthology or project or, or book project, looking at, at, at going through the bookstore and looking at who's publishing, like Titan publishes a lot of that stuff, Tor mm-hmm. publishes a lot of that stuff. And then just, you know, looking up to see who the editor was of that book. You know, Google's a wonderful resource to find this stuff out. Reach out to the editor and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a writer. I've, I've got a couple of pub credits. Uh, but not in this, but I do have some fan fiction. I can, I, I just want to share with you as a, as a writing sample, hmm. not to sell this piece of fan fiction, but to show you how I can honor the material and, and contribute to that. So many people in our, in our organization started out that way. Nancy Holder, Christopher uh, Golden, they all started out, you know, kind of making that jump from fan fiction to uh, um, professional stuff with Nancy and Chris. It was Buffy the Vampire Slayer. They were, they yeah. were right. Fan fiction. They reached out and they they got gigs to, to to work with that. And at the time, they were working. You know, it, it allowed them to not only work with Joss Whedon back when people thought he was a good guy, but also to get to know the cast. You know, and I've gotten to know the cast of a lot of the projects uh, that I that I've worked on. While doing the project with Romero, I became friends with uh, the cast. You know, the surviving cast of Night of the Living Dead, the cast of Dawn of the Dead. Um, you know, Ken Foree even wrote the who has starred as Peter in Dawn of the Dead, wrote the introduction to one of my short story collections because we had met through Romero. Um, so it's great also for building contacts and going to panels um, you know, at, at things like Comic-Con, uh, Dragon Con, which is coming up you know, Labor Day this, this year again, um, and going to panels on these topics. Often they have somebody who is writing the material Ask them that question because sometimes they're actually actively looking for people. Oh wow! Yeah, and by the way, the reason they're looking, there's somebody's looking for people. It is not always easy to get marquee names for a media tie-in project because the lack of royalties, you know. Uh, but for someone who's who's trying to to get in, saying you know, making that kind of a contact is is great because once you get your foot in the door, it then helps you get contracts for your original material elsewhere. That's awesome. Ken Furry, man. I, I love that guy. He, he's a character. He was the father on a show when I was growing up that I was a big fan of Keenan and Kel. Um, yeah, he, he's obviously a big star in a lot of horror movies, too. Uh, you know, 
I'm just going to throw this out there. The Book of Eli. Have either one of you seen that? Mm-hmm. That'd be that or the Matrix would be like and have a for the Matrix to have a horror spin on it. Those two would be like my dream tie ins. What, what, what uh, boy, I'm trying to work around the non disclosure agreement here. Uh, you'll be hearing a lot more about the Book of Eli soon. <gasps> and, and I will be attached to it. Um, that's really? all I say right now. Um, Good scoop. We got a scoop. Yeah, it's 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 definitely. Um, I you know, seriously didn't know that, man. I love that movie. Yeah, yeah. I, I probably even should be saying that much, but yeah, there, there's there's always something working, and um, uh, who knows? Maybe after this is over, we're done recording. I'll talk to you about. It. <laughs> um, Noted. But yeah, uh, Matrix is harder because it, it it's so tightly plotted that it's hard to find entries into writing new material. Where Book of mm. Eli, you know, it's it's. 30 years after the end of the world, after the after the burn. I mean, there's a hell of a lot of stories to tell. Sure. And sure. we only have one person's story anyway. So in one place, too. So yeah. let's let's jump ahead to something we can't talk about. Uh, your most recently released book. Please say it because I forgot the pronunciation of it. Kagan the Damned. There it is. Kagan the Damned. Uh, my first epic fantasy novel and also my longest novel. So far published the sequel, which will be out in January, is longer. Um, but it, yeah, it's epic fantasy, and uh, it's funny that started out in kind of a weird way. Um, my background, in fact, uh, oh, is this Zoom thing actually going to be seen by people, or they just okay? So I'm gonna tilt my my uh screen up, and then over there, you see that book I'm pointing to Conan. that is Lancer edition of Conan the Wanderer, first book I ever bought with my own money when I was 10 years old. And I fell in love with Conan and Epic Fantasy at that point. I soon after became friends with Sprague de Camp, who was who had, the guy who brought Conan back after you know Howard had committed suicide in the 30s. Wow. Um, my weirdly, my wife's grandfather, who was Robert E. Howard's part of the, the uh, agency that represented Robert E. Howard and everyone else at that era. Um, all the files from his office are now in my possession because he died in 63 and they were in storage for a long time, and now I have them. Wow. Um, so I, you know, I, and and Sprague was also you know, my wife's unofficial uncle. When we were first dating, she she saw a photo of me and Sprague. Said, Why are you standing with Uncle Sprague? I'm like, what? So I've had a long history with with, with epic fantasy. I, I loved every book by Michael Moorcock. I read every single one of them, um, and Roger Zelazny and and C.L. Moore and all of them, and. Um, but I hadn't actually written much in the way of epic fantasy, a couple of short stories. And then one day, and this is kind of weird how publishing works. One day, my editor was at a meeting with the publisher and a bunch of other editors. And the publisher said, we need to get a bigger uh, market share in epic fantasy. Do any of you know a writer either who is writing one, and they all shook their head, or, or a writer in your stable who would be willing to write one? And all the editors looked at my editor because my editor knows that I I can't say no to projects. Um, so he called me up, <clears throat> asked me if I'd be interested. And I said, hell yes. Um, I got a pitch to him in 40 minutes. We had a deal in place in two hours uh, for a new epic fantasy series. And um, the premise of this, it's set 50,000 years from now. Our world has completely, our society has completely crumbled to the point that the people in the future have no memory of us. Um, okay. You know, I didn't know if it was set in Earth or okay. It's that makes yeah, sense. It, Earth, and in the second book, you get a little more more of that backstory. And the third book, there'll be more. Um, and uh, 
magic had had come back to earth you know it, it was it, it proliferated for a while and then it was it was stamped out forcibly stamped out and this new silver this thing called the silver empire rose very um you know it's a, a really benign empire that it seems uh, but we find out that the way they crushed out magic was actually pretty cruel and and militant. And, but now this this not this character called the Witch King has risen and he's brought magic back in a very big way. And he his patron god is Hastor. If you ever read Robert Chambers, The King in Yellow, that character. You mentioned uh, the King in Yellow too, which I thought was cool. Yeah, well, because he is the King in Yellow, and and the god is the shepherd god of, you know, also is the King in Yellow. And his half-brother, according to the Lovecraftian, you know, Cthulhu mythos, Hastor's half-brother is Cthulhu. So Cthulhu's in the story, too, but he's not the bad guy in the story. Um, and I had a lot of fun with that. It brought elements of old legends and old folk tales into the story for some of the, the immortal characters who have survived all these years. The main character, Kagan, is a captain of the palace guard. He's supposed to protect the children of the empress, but he wakes up drunk in a prostitute's bed. And everyone is already, I mean, the, the, the palace has been conquered. Everyone's already slaughtered. This is the first few pages, so it's not spoilers. And because he was not on duty, you know, even though he had a day off, he, you know, his oath was to protect the children, and he failed. So he is damned now by his own gods, who actually appear in the sky and turn their back on him. And um, he, wants, he wants payback, you know, for this. So the story is all about him trying to get his shit together to, to, to try to kill this witch king. And all the complications that happen. And um, I just finished the second book, Son of the Poison Rose. It'll be out in January. Much longer book, 207,000 words. And um, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm, that, that's the long book. Holy uh, shit. <laughs> epic fantasy tends to be long because of the world building, you know, and culture building and so on. Yeah. Uh, but I had I had more fun writing Kagan the <laughs> than any other book I've ever done. Um, and I love the books. And it's, you know, I've written... Son of the Poison Rose, which I just finished a couple of months ago, was my 45th novel since 2006. Wow. Um, and it is, you know, I, I am so in love with this world. I I really think people will dig the Kagan stories. And I know oh, a lot yeah. of people already read it. Luckily, the audiobook is read by my, my boy, uh, Ray Porter, who, by the way, we were talking about Andy Weir earlier. Ray won, you know, for Audiobook Reader of the Re Year last year for reading Andy Weir's Project Hail Mary. But Very he's read, cool. he's between my anthologies, short story collections, uh, and novels, he's read about 40 of my works. And uh, he's amazing. You know, he's, mm. he's absolutely amazing. And um, of course, I gave him a lot of the Cthulhu language to have to pronounce too. There's actually <laughs> a translator online, you know, like, the, you know, those translators where it's, you know, English to French or English to German. There's one English to the Cthulhu language. So I had a lot of fun with that. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> awesome. Um, and uh, so I had a lot of fun translating things into Cthulhu, uh, into the language of Rilea. And um, uh, Ray has to, had to pronounce all of it, even though there's a notable lack of vowels in that language. Um, but he did a great job. The audiobook's amazing. And to top it off, my editor had reached out to Michael Moorcock to get a possible cover quote. And Moorcock, first of all, I, hadn't, I didn't know Michael was still alive. You know, because um, he hadn't put in a book in a while and he hasn't been in, in the news and anything. Um, and what I did know about Moorcock from some years ago was he's notorious for not giving cover quotes and for writing scathing letters to people um, whose books were sent to him for cover quotes. 
but he loved Kagan. And we have a, a really nice, you know, cover quote on, you know, right on the front of it. Um, and we also got quotes from Robin Hobb, James Rollins, the number one thriller writer, Shona McGuire, Kevin J. Anderson, and Weston Oaks all gave us, you know, gave, gave us really strong support. So I'm absolutely thrilled. I just launched uh, Kagan the Dam May 10. I uh, went to pe- back to Pennsylvania where I grew up and launched it there. And we had a huge crowd. And I am just having so much fun with that. Man, I would, I don't know how I missed that. I wish I knew about that because I'm only about 45 minutes to an hour from Philly. Yeah, it was in Doylestown, if you know, know where Doylestown is. It's north of there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's in Bucks County. Oh, man, son of a bitch. Uh, <laughs> I was just in Pennsylvania a few weeks ago for a work thing. And uh, after the hours for uh, this class for work, I got to drive to Phoenixville. And oh, yeah. Don Winslow was there doing a sign, and so that was cool. At least I got to meet one author like in PA. And it's funny, Ray Porter reads his books too. Oh no way! Okay, um, Mark, jump in, bud. Um, you, I mean, you mentioned you know the length because of the world building, and when it comes to epic fantasy, like the thing that really, as a reader, that draws me into that kind of thing is the world building. Because, you know, all writing is world building to some degree, but yeah. a lot of the times we're starting with our world and building on that. But with epic right. fantasy, there's so much freedom to just really start from the ground up. And um, not having written anything like that myself, I do wonder, like, can you talk a little bit about what's that like when you really get to completely create your own, <laughs> your own societies? And how different is that from when you're starting with sort of a basis of our reality? Well, I have a, um, a kind of a, a method for world building that I call day in the life. Um, I like, I, I don't like doing info dump type world building. You know, like a lot of writers, they spend so much time creating this world and they have huge long documents. Since they become so invested, they think the reader wants to read every detail and the reader does not want to read every detail. The reader needs to know what the reader needs to know and maybe some cool extra stuff. So, and like, for example, in my novel, Rotten Ruin, which is set 14 years after the zombie apocalypse, I tell the world by having two kids growing up in a small town, um, you know, in a small isolated town in, in the zombie wasteland looking for jobs because at 15, they have to get jobs or get the rations cut. So the jobs that they're looking for are jobs that would only exist in a, in a post zombie apocalypse world. So it allows me to tell about the world without, like I said, just info dumping. We learn little bits and pieces of the history when we need to know them, but we don't learn anything we don't need to know at the time. So with Kagan, you know, he wakes up, you know, um, and and immediately has to run through a a city, you know, embroiled in battle to get to the palace by by seeing who's attacking, who's who who are the mercenaries working with the bad guys. Um, and and what's burning, what's being attacked, we get a sense of what's important and what's not important, who's who. All of those things have their place because of how they're acting and reacting to each other as the as the book unfolds. Nothing, um, like there are things I want the reader to know, but if they don't need to know it during those, those chapters, they don't, they're not burdened with it during those chapters. And later on, there are times when you can tell a little more. And I use also some epigrams at the beginning of, of each part of the book uh, that are like historical documents, fragments of historical documents that kind of set the tone a little bit, give a little more insight and historical perspective. 
And, a, and more of the world will actually unfold through conversation. Like there's one character who's a historian, a very um, self-centered historian. He was the historian for the Silver Empire, which has now you know, been overthrown. And he's offered an opportunity to become the, the historian for the new empire. And he's like, I sure, I'm right there. And in that discussion, they're asking, well, why are you willing to change you know, direction so quickly? And he goes into the, the, you know, the explanation of how history is written by the victors. And you know, the Silver Empire were the victors for a while, and their take was this. You guys have this take. So he was able to give that historical perspective in conversation rather than the essay-like you know, info dumps that you see in, in some books. Um, so either characters will say it or characters will encounter it as they need to, but you're never going to have a chapter where it's just this is the world. You know, it's not going to be a, a chapter out of a history book. If if you think of, you know, really what the reader needs to know at the time, that will often inform you about what to say. Now, that said, uh, because we tend to love this world, and often in first draft, we overwrite. Then in second draft, we cut, we pair it back to what, you know, taking out the stuff that's there because we want to read it, not because we think the reader really would enjoy it. <laughs> That um, I love that approach. It reminds me a lot of um Jasper Ford. I don't know if you've ever yeah, read because yeah. um I read his books and like he he doesn't do those info dumps. You realize it as you go along, as it's relevant to the character, and you might finish a book and realize I don't know all the rules of this society, but I didn't need to know all of them. Right. The story, and in some ways, that makes it feel more real. So I I love that approach. That sounds really awesome. Yeah, actually, J.K. Rowling did that really well in the Harry Potter books. Harry, you know, what the reader needs to know is what Harry needs to know. So we learn it as Harry learns it. And, and that, that, again, keeps it vital because you don't have to recall facts that um, may be important later, because if they're not important now, you're not going to be burdened with them. Yeah, that's a really smart approach. Um, so book two, I'm just curious because... You did uh, show that it got leaked. The cover got leaked. That- yeah. <laughs> the, the cover wasn't supposed to be shown until after the first book had been out for like a month and a half. <laughs> we were playing this big reveal in uh, June or July. And then I happened to be doing a search on actually Kagan. And it said, you know, people who bought this also pre-ordered this. And it's the cover of the new book. And it's up for pre-order on Amazon. I'm like, the hell? So I figured... Just- take control of it, take control of the message and went out and said, Hey, this, since it's been leaked, you know, what do you think? And it's a beautiful cover. Rob Grom, who's the art director at uh, St. Martin's Griffin. He's done most of my covers uh, there and he's, he's amazing. And the Kagan cover is beautiful. The poison rose cover is beautiful. So um, it, it made a nice moment to be able to share that. Well, that's really cool. Um, you said it's a lot bigger. So page count wise, do you know how big that book two is? Well, you know, I don't know. Um, Kagan is 176,000 words and it's 549 pages. Um, so the other one will be 30,000 words longer than that. So you figure probably another 100 pages, somewhere in the sixes, middle to high sixes. Um, you know, but, but there's a lot happening in it. Um, I don't let my characters like rest too much <laughs> yeah you know, and also I, I tend to write ensemble casts so if there is a point where like kagan has to to go on a uh, go somewhere and it's gonna take him a week to get there i'll forget him for a couple of chapters and go and tell somebody else's story and let them get into trouble 
and uh, keeps things moving along nicely. For fantasies of this one specifically, I know you got the map, but is there timelines that you wrote down or is a lot of it in your head? Because it there's a lot, man, I just yeah. finished reading this. There's a lot to keep account for. Well, luckily, what you need to know there, you know, I'll kind of remind the reader a little bit in the next book. So there'll, there'll be little things that will trigger memories of, of certain things. But anything you don't need to know from the first book, you're not going to be required to know in the second book. You know, there's things that just happened in the first book, and we don't need to carry that baggage with us. Some things you do, and they'll be echoed by either um, scenes or, or conversation about that thing. Uh, like there's a reveal at one point, no spoilers, um, that the characters are going to talk about very early on in the next book, because we that needs to be a focus. That is a, a big focus of the second book, um, you know, a certain reveal. But um, I don't require that everything be remembered because it's just so much. Yeah. What I require is it, it, what I want the reader to do is follow the adventure as it unfolds. Okay. So I want them to be as much in the present as possible. Um, as far as the chronology, in my case, I do have certain things in mind, a timeline for how things, you know, uh, unfold. And uh, one of the funny thing is like, if I'm writing a contemporary novel, I try to set them in like five or six days because people can drive or fly a plane in epic fantasy. You know, it takes place on a con uh, one half of a continent, this empire. So getting from one place to another takes days or even weeks. So um, when I'm doing that, I make sure that um, like if, if I, I figure out how much, like I've actually talked to people who um, spend time on horses, like, like people who are professional drovers, which is what they actually call cowboys that don't really call them cowboys. Um, so drovers who are, who are you know, driving, how long does it take them to, to go a hundred miles by finding that out a little bit of research, I can then plan out how long it's going to take Kagan and his companions to go from uh, Argonne to Nelphidia, which is two different countries in the, in the story and make sure that there are enough other events happening in the world so that the other characters aren't essentially sitting there twiddling their thumbs. I need to know how long it's going to take for the characters to do the things they're going to do. Kagan does a lot of traveling in the book, by sea, by land, over mountains, and all of those things I had to figure out how long it would actually take someone on horseback to do that. Hmm. And it was fun research. It doesn't show except in the fact that it seems to make sense because nobody gets anywhere too fast or too slow. That's that's perfect. I just got one more question about the book. Uh, Brennan sent me questions, but they kind of, we've kind of covered them. Uh, was there? Are you a fan of of research and and history in particular, or hmm. did you, did you have to plow through a lot of uh, digging for certain inspirations for the countries and kind of how they co mingle? Well, I'm I'm a certified research junkie. Hmm. Without a doubt. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of history. I study history a lot and big fan of politics because politics play in the book a lot, too. Mm -hmm. You know, the politics of, of, of kingdoms and empires, not, mm -hmm. you know, uh, American politics. And um, so I, I, do, I do a ton of research. And uh, there are things that I actually talk to experts about in my books, too. I, I am one of those writers that will always reach out to an expert, probably because I studied journalism rather than creative writing when I was in college. And, you know, you always want the expert. You want to you want to get, get a source for something. So like there's a section of the of the second book that, that takes place on sailing ships of a certain type based on the Greek trireme. I had to talk to somebody who knows Greek triremes. 
how how big the crew is, you know, what it's like below decks, um, how they can maneuver, what ships are, are faster, you know, what what could catch them in an open sea. All of that is research I do. What I don't do is again info dump all this all the stuff I found out. Probably the reader gets about two percent of it, the two percent that matters to the story, hmm. not all the stuff that I just found fascinating and who I need to share it all. Um, and it's fun because you know you do some some good research and it makes the story um, very solid. And for people who actually are knowledgeable in certain areas, like th- there's a a remedy that somebody gives Kagan, uh, somebody Kagan wants in the first book to get rid of a hangover. The formula for that that uh, recipe is an actual medieval formula for oh, wow. a hangover. Um, so I talked to somebody uh, who actually knows something about medieval uh, chemistry um, and alchemy a little bit. Um, I talked to talked to experts on on a, a number of different subjects, even a little bit of metallurgy and also sword crafting, knife crafting, because Kagan uses daggers rather than swords. But most people think of a dagger as a slim bladed dagger, but there are a lot of, you know, more combat, heavy combat daggers. The Roman short sword is actually in the zone of a long dagger, a combat dagger. So that's the type of sword he has, which is a sturdier blade can actually withstand the sword cut. Um, But I had to talk to people who actually understood the different types of, of active blade play and, and, and metallurgy so that I was giving him the right kind of weapon and could justify why he's able to fight against swordsmen with a pair of daggers. So, wow. and then I, and then I also tapped my own, own background. I'm 58 years in jujitsu. I'm an eighth degree black belt retired and also been doing Kenjutsu, Japanese sword play for uh, over 50 years. Mm-hmm. So I'm able to um, make his fighting style make sense for someone of his height, weight, reach and age because uh he, he's young and very fit which means he can use he can move fast so i actually gave him a fighting style create a fighting style for him that works that actually would work for someone in that situation i did the same thing by the way when i was writing the black panther comic because i was writing it when uh shuri was the panther this is years ago and um i wanted to create a fighting style for her that would actually work for a woman of her size and, and uh approximate strength so I love doing that, that little, if, if you do that kind of research and build it into the story and do it in a way that you're not showing off your research, what, what, it, you know, I, my hope is that it turns out to be an entertaining read without me, you know, looking like I'm some, something of a, of a snob in terms of history or whatever. And I don't, I don't want that vibe. I just want them to be totally in the story. Uh, you did that in my opinion, the, totally in the story, man. Uh Yeah. Mark, anything to add to this, or otherwise we're going to jump to what are you reading? Uh, well, I was just going to say, I know you, you know, this is a new series. Um, how far ahead have you sort of thought, like, how many books right now do you sort of see? In uh, Kagan? Yeah. Um, I have the third book completely plotted out, and I have, um, like, kind of capsule synopses for um, beyond that, because my thought is to do three books that are the Witch King cycle, and then after that, do standalone novels. Um, and they would be kind of like if you're familiar with Carl Edward Wagner, who did the Kane novels back in the, the late 70s, 80s, be more like that, where it's it's, it's almost a semi Lovecraftian monster, you know, good guy versus monster sort of story, a little bit of Conan, a little bit of Kane. Um, and uh, 
a little bit King Cole too, because he's going to, in one of the books, fight the serpent men from Velusia, which is definitely from, from, you know, nod to uh, the King Cole stories by Robert E. Howard. But I, I have, I, I probably have the next four books uh, pretty well plotted out. So I know what's going to happen that way. You know, I can lay the groundwork with little clues now that will pay off later on, but that you don't know their clues now, but you know, they're, they're at moments where you remember them later on. <coughs> That's awesome. Uh, so Jonathan, what are you currently reading? Well, I'm um, hmm, I, it's funny. Cause I, I, I read a lot of different things at once mm-hmm. uh, I, I look for fun. Like what I read for uh, entertainment is is I actually listen to audio a lot while I'm traveling. Same. Right, yeah. right now, I'm actually listening to Keg in the Damned because I don't get to hear the audio book until it comes out. <laughs> and Ray's performance of it is so marvelous that I can enjoy the book, even though I wrote it, I can enjoy it because his inflection and character interpretation brings a newness to it that even me as the writer is able to enjoy. Um, so I'm listening to that. Also, um, actually going through a lot of nineteenth, late 19th century, early 20th century horror short stories, H.L. Uh, Mencken and, and M.R. James and, and that crowd. Hmm. Always love that sort of stuff because I have a whole bunch of short stories I have to write this year. And listening to those kind of give me, you know, fuel my, my short story mojo. I'm uh, going through the entire um, long Halloween Batman thing from, from, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. Um, there's one graphic novel that collects the whole series. It's just fantastic. So I'm reading that in, in print, um, but also reading a ton of nonfiction research about the Dead Sea Scrolls, because the next book I'll be writing after the one I'm currently writing, which is science fiction, next book I'll be writing is the 13th in my Joe Ledger weird science thriller series. And that will deal with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Cool. And also doing science research because it also deals with weaponized mycotoxins, basically if somebody imagine if somebody were to take magic mushrooms and weaponize them and introduce that to an enemy stronghold. So say somebody wants to take over a military base, they they just aerosolize the, um, a fast onset uh, hallucinogenic mushroom. Everybody is is you know tripping balls all over the, the the military base. Bad guys can waltz in and just do what they want to do, um, and, and I get think and get a high five. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that would be kind of fun to put a little ayahuasca in there, a little magic mushroom, but also some some of the rare myco, uh, mycotoxins that show up in old crypts and tombs. Um, I thought that would be a lot of fun to do as a weapon because it's not your typical rage virus sort of weapon, which I've used a couple of times. Um, and it allows me to write, will allow me to write really trippy hallucinogenic scenes. And it's funny because I've never, I've never gotten high on my mushrooms or anything. Um, so what about ayahuasca. Yeah, I haven't done any of that, but I've talked to I'm, I talked to and will be talking to people who are, you know, uh, very experienced with it. And it's a lot of fun to do that kind of research, too. To, to, uh, you can get people who are ordinarily pretty straight and then you hear their what their their hallucinating, what the trips are. It's like, wow, that came from inside you. That's awesome. So uh, it, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun to do. So that's the research I'm doing right now. That's excellent. Mark, what about you? What are you reading? Uh, I just finished uh, Devil's Wake by Tananarive Dew and Stephen Barnes, which is a, a pretty fun uh, take on the zombie uh, story. And then I just started um, This Time Tomorrow by Emma Straub, Peter Straub's daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so far, I'm really enjoying that one. It's uh, kind of a ball. You know that movie? Yeah, but sure. um, it's my first, first time I've ever read Emma. 
um, but I'm really enjoying it. And I'm uh, beta reading a, a new novella by uh, Kevin Lucia, and I'm uh, really enjoying that too. Nice. Awesome. So I just finished Keegan literally today. <laughs> and cool. which, by the way, man, um, I, I really did love it. I thought it was really cool. I glad you enjoyed it. Really. Yeah. Um, and for the audio listeners who can't see this, this is by Mark Matthews. He's our next guest. Uh, it's Orphans of of Bliss. It's the third in a trilogy of an anthology. Um, it's a pretty – is that backwards? No, no. Yeah, one of my, one, a couple of my good buddies there, Josh, G- uh, Gabino, yeah, Kalen. Yeah, it's nice to see some of my friends in there. Cool. Yeah, rock, rock solid uh, table of contents, plus Mark's Mark's an uh, awesome guy himself. So, what's um, the first book in that trilogy? Because I want to, I want to go grab that. Oh man, you put me on spot. I don't, <laughs> I forgot what it was. Well, I'll, I'll, look it I'll, I'll look it up. Yeah, but um, I know that he's just he he he's really great at putting that stuff together too. Awesome. Um, yeah, so it's just those two right now. Um, Jonathan, where can people follow you? And then Mark, I'm going to ask you the same thing. So um, if they spell my last name right, I'm easy to find. It's M-A-B-E-R-R-Y, <laughs> not M-A-Y-B, M-A-B. JonathanMayberry.com is my website. If anyone out there listening or watching is a writer, on my website is a page called Free Stuff for Writers. It has all sorts of resources, comic book scripts, query letters, all sorts of stuff, downloadable PDFs, grab what you want. I'm also on um, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I am currently learning TikTok. Um, because apparently book talk's a big thing. There's a big book community on there I didn't know about. So I'm learning that. Um, and uh, I'm so I'm all over the social media. I love social media. Every Thursday, uh, four to five I, uh, East Pacific time, I do an Ask Me Anything. So, you know, that can, you can join in that. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all over the place. Plus, I'm doing a bunch of signings coming up. Um, well, actually, by the time this airs, I'll have done uh, a chunk of them but doing signings for Kagan um, right now up and down uh, Southern California. Mm, cool. Mark. Uh, I'm all the usual places, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, my Instagram, all I do is show pictures of books though, but um, I, I have not joined the TikTok thing that John Jonathan has. Um, I have one toe in that water, so yeah, it's not like I'm there yet. I understand. I do. I work at a university campus, and the young people tell me that Facebook is for old people, and they're always trying to get me to join TikTok and Snapchat, and I'm like, I don't even know what those words are. But Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram is where I usually am, and I have a, a blog at markgunnels.livejournal.com that is updated semi-regularly. I'll go check it out. Uh, I just created a TikTok for Dead Headspace only a few months ago. And yeah, book talks seems to be a big thing. And that's, uh, I think, I'm pretty sure Eric LaRocca flat out said that that's, he, he credits people on there for kind of blowing up. Things have gotten worse since we last spoke, that novella. Um, Jonathan, final thoughts, sir? Ah, well, you know, if, if you're... Since we're, we're talking about epic fantasy and also horror, you know, if you're watching this and you and you haven't read into either of those genres, you really should. A lot of a lot of people are hesitant about horror because they think horror is all just gore and stuff. It's really not. There's 
hundreds of subgenres of horror. It's so worth you know diving into. Actually, anthologies are a good good start because you find voices, new writers that you may not have heard of before. Take a shot on on, on some of those anthologies. Get to know those writers. Get to see the range of what horror can do. And with epic fantasy, you know, you can either go old school with the folks you mentioned earlier, or some of the new guys like Joe Abercrombie and, and so on, who are just writing up amazing new stuff right now. Um, so, you know, my thing is, if you're going to really try something, dig deep, spend a couple of weeks or a couple months just really digging into a new genre. You're going to find um, that there's a lot of richness there, and you're going to have a hell of a lot of fun. Well said. Mark, final thoughts. Well, uh, I just want to thank you for inviting me to fill in uh, especially on a night when i got to talk with uh, jonathan who uh i love listening to him talk so uh i'm just grateful to be here that's my final my final thoughts are uh yeah i i i uh, reached out to you only a few hours ago so i was i'm thankful for that jonathan I'm thankful that we got to talk to you again um and of course we're open for next year if you want for the sequel that'd be awesome uh Brennan had nothing but high praise for that first book too. Well, so to say, tell Brennan I said hey, and you know Patrick and Mark, you guys were held a lot of fun. You ask good questions too, and that's that makes this easy and fun. If you guys are asking <laughs> questions, so thanks. That's that's excellent. And listeners, uh, next episode is one fifty. This is a hundred fiftieth recorded episode. There's actually one that we recorded in season one that um I don't know if we'll ever release it. So. Uh, Next episode, 150, is with Mark Matthews. Uh, As always, thank you for picking us. Have a good night. Have a good night, guys.